Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 19 of Raw Talk, where scientists talk and we listen. I expect that right about now you must be used to hearing the suave voices of either Richard Jabir, and therefore you might be wondering whose voice this is. So let me introduce myself. My name is Alex, and you may recognize me from some of the previous segments, but either way, I'll be your host for the episode. The reason you'll be hearing more from me today is because this month's theme is RPIs, where we'll be featuring some of our very own supervisors on the podcast. In today's installment of Raw Talk, I'll be sitting down with Dr. Elizabeth Pang, who is my PI and mentor. Liz is a neurophysiologist and senior associate scientist based out of SickHeads, and like many other faculty members of the IMS, she balances her time between clinical work and research. Liz is specialized in developmental brain research using a very special and cool tool called magnetoencephalography, MEG for short. More specifically, she researches various language and cognitive functions in children with brain disorders and or injuries, but she's also worked with other populations, such as individuals who suffer from PTSD or have acquired a mild traumatic brain injury. One of the things Liz and I talked about when I met up with her for the podcast was the scientific importance of directly researching and engaging with the brain when one has questions about the brain. She's a huge proponent of this and had a lot of interesting thoughts to share on the topic. Hopefully you'll find our discussion as interesting as I did. Now before we get started, I just want to express how excited and happy we get when we hear back from you, so please keep writing, rating us, and sending us your feedback. If you haven't already, follow and like us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter using the at Podcast handle. And you can also support the show by using the Amazon banner found on our website. Okay, that's enough from me. Let's meet Liz. Liz and I are currently sitting in Liz's office at SickKids, and this is where we meet roughly every week for our meetings. So I am Liz's second-year master's student, and so I'll show up to her office roughly once a week in a bit of a frenzy, usually accompanied by some kind of uh, PowerPoint presentation with over 200 slides worth of data. And she's always very patient with me and will help me uh, sift through all the data and find some kind of essence, which she's very, very good at. We'll actually be having a little meeting right after this, and uh, don't worry, the slides, there's only about a hundred of them this time, so it won't take that long. Okay, so before we jump into the world of MEG and the work that you do and, and your contributions to the field, I thought we could start our discussion with getting your thoughts on something that I know you feel quite strongly about, and that's the importance of taking a direct neurophysiological or neuroimaging approach when studying the brain. So, as we know in science, when we have questions about the human brain, we can and will take many different approaches to answer it. So, some of them might be genetic-based, others will involve animal models, but I want to get your thoughts on why it is still important to make sure we also try and engage the brain directly in our population of interest. So, thanks, Alex. It's always a pleasure to be sitting here chatting with you. (laughs) Um, So, in answer to your question, I think I have a very exciting job. I quite love it. And I think that what we get to do when we take a neurophysiological approach is that we get to tie it to the real person. So I often see the kids that I'm investigating, I see them as a whole real person, which is very exciting. And then we get to see what their brain is doing as we um, ask them to do whatever it is that we're trying to capture with our recordings. And so I think it's very important, I mean, it's very important to do the basic science because it informs us, but um, the basic science can reach a point and then we've got to start thinking about the whole person, how the whole person fits together with the question that we're trying to answer. Right, right. No, that, that absolutely makes sense. And this is actually a perfect uh, segue into to one of the main questions I had is, what is magnetoencephalography exactly? Well, I mean, I, I actually do know because I'm your student and I study it. Um, but maybe you could you you could talk a bit about what MEG is, 
similar to fMRI, there's also a functional neuroimaging modality. So in what way is it different or, or better? How is it innovative? Magnetoencephalography, or MEG, is a way to capture brain activity. And so the modality that most people know about is something called EEG. And with EEG, what we do is we can paste electrodes right onto the scalp and then we can record uh, what the brain is outputting as it's mm -hmm. doing different tasks. But the really cool thing about MEG is that we're not pasting things to the scalp, we're actually capturing uh, what's coming out of the brain through the magnetic signal, and so it's a much cleaner response than what we get with EEG. And so we can ask a person to do something, um, look at a picture, answer a question, something like that, and then we can capture exactly millisecond by millisecond which parts of the brain are uh, becoming more activated as they're doing that task. And so it gives us a very clear uh, picture of brain function. Um, how it's different from other functional neuro neuroimaging modalities is that this is a neurophysiological modality, meaning it's capturing the activity of the neurons. So it's not looking at a secondary measure like blood flow or glucose uptake or something like that, but it's actually neuronal firing. And so it's really tied to what the brain is doing. And so I wouldn't say that it's, it's better than the other modalities, but it's definitely complementary. And so if we can take MEG and fMRI and all the different functional imaging modalities and put them together, I think this is the way that we can really capture what, what the brain and the person is doing with their cognitive tasks. Right. And uh, I know one of the things that you always sort of highlight when, when you're introducing it is, is the, the temporal acuity that it has and, and how sensitive it is to millisecond by millisecond changes in the brain. So in what kind of population specifically do you think this could be useful? Um, or what kind of populations have you worked with? So um, this high temporal resolution, meaning we can look at millisecond uh, by millisecond activity in the brain is really important for many cognitive tasks, but the population I'm most interested in, well, there's several populations, <laughs> but um, the, the, the function that I'm most interested in is language, and you can't look at language in the order of seconds because we talk way faster than that. And so we need to be looking in the order of milliseconds because by the time a word is spoken and it gets to our ear and goes to through all of our auditory processes and all of that, that's way less than a second. Right. And so that's where MEG is really valuable because it can pull apart all those little pieces that come together to make language happen. Right. I know that um, in, during your, your postdoc here at SickKids, you investigated um, speech and non-speech in children and how that develops over time. Um, do you think you could, you could tell us a little bit about that? The piece that we found from that early work was that your brains develop to become specialized to certain uh, phonemes within your own language. And so we did do a study. It was in adults. Okay. But what we did was we took adults who spoke spoke English as their first language. And so within English, we have some uh, specific phonemes mm -hmm. um, that aren't present in other language languages. And so the other group we looked at were Japanese speakers. In Japanese, they don't have the R and the L sound. Oh. And so uh, what we found was that their brains, although they could speak English now, and they right. had learned English as a second language, their brains were not structured to differentiate an R and L sound. That's fascinating. And so it was really fascinating because um, what this tells us is that there's a window within which you can learn the phonemes for your first language, mm -hmm. the sounds for your first language, and then once you've passed that window, you need to kind of adapt what you already have in your brain right. to learn your second language. And so you will never become perfect, perfect in a second language after the closing of this window because your brain 
is not able to wow. differentiate. So that's a perfect example of how um, a neurophysiological measure is really valuable for looking at language because okay. we're looking at the millisecond by millisecond um, timing in okay. the brain as uh, these people are differentiating the R and the L sound. Okay. So this was very early research before okay. we purchased our the EEG, EEG. Okay. and so all of that research done with EEG fed into some of what we started to do with MEG. And so when we got our MEG, we had to step back a little bit and rebuild okay. some of um, right. the science that we had, and so we've been rebuilding some of the language tasks and some of what we know. Wait, was any of this work done during your postdoc? Because I think that's how I started the question. Or yeah, um, so the baby work and the children work was, yeah. was done in my postdoc, and it was all auditory processing stuff. So I can describe a study where we did look at language in a clinical group and where the temporal resolution was very important. A previous master's student had looked in a group of children with autism and looked at their speech production mechanisms in the brain. And what was really interesting was that she found that there were 30 millisecond time lags even when they weren't doing speech yet, so they were doing just a simple um, oral motor task, the children with autism were already delayed mm -hmm. in their basic processing compared to the controls. And then once we added in higher order tasks, uh, such as just speaking a phoneme and right. then speaking a, a series of phonemes, this delay just got bigger and bigger. And so this demonstrates two things. Um, one is that MEG was really invaluable for picking out these 30 millisecond delays because Absolutely. there's no other modality that could have done that for us. Uh, but the other important thing was that this was the first demonstration that even at a fundamental level, there's a tiny delay that's very robust and significant mm -hmm. in the children with autism. And so if you have that at your first stage, and then if that increases incrementally with each stage of processing, then what you end up with is you'll see a very big delay in your output. Right. And so prior to MEG, we would see this dysfunction at the output end, mm -hmm. but we couldn't piece together what all the parts were that went into creating that. And so MEG is allowing us to look at each little piece and to um, figure out where the delays or, ab or abnormalities are in each little piece. Right. And as those pieces get put together, we end up with a big dysfunction or delay that we see. Absolutely. And that nicely fits also with um, what we know about the ASD or autism phenotype, that they have these impairments in social communication. That's right. And so there might be an issue with like auditory and language processing, at the as you mentioned, at That's the very right. fundamental level. Wow, very interesting. Right. Mm -hmm. I should have known that. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everyone, it's Jabir, and I'm thrilled to host our very first Meet the Inventor segment with MEG inventor Dr. David Cohen, an associate professor in radiology at Harvard Medical School and associate neuroscientist at Massachusetts General Hospital. How are you, Dr. Cohen? I'm just fine. It's a cool day in Boston, but I'm <laughs> fine. Just an aside before I get into the questions with you, when I was brainstorming ideas for this segment, I realized that the MEG is a fairly new technique, so after doing a quick Google search on the inventor, and discovering that you still had an active email and you were still active in research, I knew it would be a great opportunity to bring you on the show and get your insights into the process of invention and science. So thanks for being on the show, Dr. Cohen. You're most welcome. Sweet. So uh, let's get right into it then. What gave you the idea to build the MEG? Was there something that you saw was missing in the imaging technology field before everyone else did? And that's what compelled you to get going, or did it happen more by coincidence, as often is the case uh, with scientific discoveries? It didn't work that way. I was a magnet physicist, mm -hmm. actually a high-energy physicist, using magnets on particle beams, mm -hmm. cyclotrons and synchrotrons. 
And I got thinking, those are very strong magnets. Where are there very weak magnets that it would be fun to measure? And I realized the human body can be a source of very weak magnetic fields. The human body has electric currents, and these electric currents produce magnetic fields that leave the body and spread out around the body. So I got at it because I worked with high magnetic fields at first, and then I got interested at the other extreme, very weak magnetic fields. It worked like that. I wasn't looking for an instrument. I just got interested in how to measure these very weak magnetic fields, mm-hmm. which must be produced by the body. Okay, I got it. So it was really an itch to find out if you could measure these weak magnetic fields with the tools you had at the time, um, not necessarily, and that's what your funding was for, not necessarily that you were inventing something. When I got started in the late 60s, money was very easy to get. There was no problem. And especially I was at MIT most of the time. And MIT was very good at helping me get the money. So money was no problem. And I had to convince people that there could be some interesting things here. And maybe we can eventually diagnose diseases in a better way. Diseases of the heart, diseases of the brain, diseases of the lung, so on. So it was easy to get money as for diagnostic reasons. And you mentioned that you had to convince some people. Was there ever any hesitancy from directors or pushback from other scientists that kind of surprised you or were people around you uh, more optimistic? Oh, sure. I started this at the University of Illinois at, in ch- the city of Chicago, the, the branch in the city of Chicago. And the physics department, where I was a, an associate professor, didn't like this sort of work. And they said, well, we want you to do pure physics. Why are you wasting your time measuring the human body? You should be doing traditional physics. They didn't like it. And eventually I left and went to MIT, who did like it. They said, we're interested in that kind of thing. Well, what made MIT like it and not Illinois? Was there someone at MIT who was following your work and appreciating what you had going on? It was a group at MIT, the National Magnet Laboratory, the Francis Bitter Magnet Lab. And they looked at all, they were looking for all sorts of interesting applications of magnetism. Mm -hmm. So it was the right group that I fell in with. They said, come, live here and make your laboratory here. So I moved. I think they were happy to get rid of me (laughs) at the University of Illinois. No one liked it there. And I couldn't get tenure. They said, we don't give tenure for funny stuff like that. Well, it turned out to be a big thing, not too uh, funny at all. (laughs) But you started with the heart, then went into the brain. What made you decide to study the brain and make that shift? Well, the heart was more interesting because there were more immediate problems to solve for diagnosing heart disease, Mm -hmm. and the brain looked too complicated. So I held off on the brain for quite a while. I did the brain in 1972 and the heart actually in 1967, and it was at MIT that I published the paper that people really paid attention to, which was the measurement of the magnetic field of the head using sensitive detectors called the SQUID, S-Q-U-I-D, Superconducting Quantum Interference Device. They had just been invented by a physicist by the name of Jim Zimmerman, that very delicate detector. And he brought his detector to my lab and we measured the heart. And later, a couple years later, I measured the brain. So I measured the brain first at Illinois very crudely, then more accurately and better at MIT in 1972. And what's a SQUID? Well, the squid has its roots in something very complicated called quantum physics. I'm afraid I can't go into it, yeah. nor qualify. 
but I'll tell you, squid means superconducting quantum interference device. If you take a loop, superconducting loop, like lead wire, and join it with a normally conducting thin film, make a loop, superconducting thin film, very interesting things happen. And that loop becomes extremely sensitive to the magnetic field going through it. Okay. And that's not a very good explanation, <laughs> but that's as far as I'm going to go. That's fair. That's fair. Knowledge is potential power. That's what they say anyways. Well, what about documenting? Uh, were you very meticulous in recording your ideas? We all have lab notebooks that we use and carry around to this day. Uh, do you still have yours? Oh, yes. Huge MIT lab notebooks. About uh, 12 of them. I still have and still look at them. I was very meticulous. It's fun to go back and look over. Everything I did or thought is in those notebooks. I wish I could do that. I'm still doing research. Mm -hmm. I'm sloppy about my notebooks now. And where, where are they now? Do you have them with you? They're in my house, yeah. Uh, I could run and get one and show it to you on, on the thing, but if you want me to. Oh, that would be awesome. Okay, I'll be back in a second. Okay. Well, this is a great time for a segment break. Back to you, Alex. So Liz, why, why in general is it important to study brain development? I know that uh, neurophysiological work and uh, neuroimaging work in children is a bit more of a niche, yet it's gaining traction and it is being recognized as something more important. Can you maybe tell us a bit more about why that is and, and why it really is important to study this population? So years ago, we used to think of children as just mini adults, right? Okay. And so we thought we could just study adults and then if we kind of miniaturized it a little bit, we would understand <laughs> children and that is absolutely totally not true. And so um, as we've started to study children, we realize that their brains are very different. And as they learn and develop, their brains do it differently. And so even though a child might look like they're doing the same task as an adult, so for right. example, your um, research work, Alex, <laughs> right. um, the outputs might be that the children are just as accurate as the adults or seeming to do the task just as well. But when you investigate what their brains are doing, the adults might use just a couple of brain regions mm -hmm. uh, because they've become so proficient. Um, a couple of brain regions to complete the task, whereas when you look at these children, there's tons going on in yeah. the brain because they need to recruit all sorts of areas so that they can complete the same task with the same accuracy. Yeah. And so there are big developmental trajectories that we need to investigate. And this is important in our clinical groups because if we intervene at certain stages, we might have to target our interventions differently depending on which parts of the brain are actively involved in whatever tasks they're doing. And so right. it just makes the whole picture more complicated. And so um, it's very important to understand development in our normal, typically developing cohorts so that we can understand what is really abnormal looking right. in our clinical cohorts. Right. And I can imagine that that would also be important for even um, adult clinical groups, not just in children, but also having a good understanding of how what typical development brain development looks like in childhood and how that sort of progresses over time. And as you said, then we can know maybe when the intervention needs to be given. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing is that it might not be that some of the adult cohorts are abnormal. It mm -hmm. might be that they're just immature. And so by knowing our developmental right. trajectory, we can fit them on the immaturity scale. And then our intervention might actually be just to help them develop further along that right. tra trajectory. So has any of this variety of very interesting research, has it at all influenced your clinical duties? Maybe you could tell us a bit about what, what you do clinically as a, as a neurophysiologist, and has any of your work helped you with your practice? So um, for my clinical work, I'm part of the uh, epilepsy surgery team. And so for a small uh, proportion of children who have epilepsy, 
surgery is a very good solution for them. Mm -hmm. And so once we identify those children, identify that surgery might be helpful for them, we need to determine not just where the epilepsy is in the brain, we also need to determine where function is in the brain. Because right. if we're going to surgically remove diseased area where the epilepsy is, we need to also make sure that we're not removing mm -hmm. a functional area. And so my role is to try and map out the functional pieces of the brain. Right. And so this is what's informed a lot of my research, is that I'm very curious about where things actually happen in the brain so right. that we can map them out. And so children's brains are very plastic, and so they all shift their important functions around. And mm -hmm. so we really do need to carefully map them out. So my clinical work has been influenced by my research because we have developed lots of protocols to try to map out different functions in the brain. And so right now we're very interested in mapping out language and over the last um, few years we've developed protocols that can map out roughly where basic language resides in the brain. Right. But our current understanding, well not our current understanding, but um, what we're coming to realize is that basic language is not your full language spectrum, right. right? So language is complex and interesting and uh, full of lots of nuances. And so mapping basic language doesn't capture at all. And so my current research is focused on trying to find um, new protocols to map out some of the other aspects of language. And so we have a protocol um, that, that's really cute. It's a little movie that has all sorts of grammar problems in it and things like that. And so we're trying to map out where in the brain grammar is processed. Uh, we have another set of really cute videos that use language but are humorous, and so we're trying to map out where humor might be in the brain and how that's tied to language. And so now my research is focused on trying to understand these higher order of aspects, right. uh, higher order aspects of language and map them in the brain, and then that will be translated into my clinical work where we can apply this to uh, children going for surgery. So, so just to clarify, the patients or participants, will they have an EEG cap on when they watch these videos? So uh, right now we're starting with EEG, mm -hmm. uh, but we're translating into MEG as well. Right. So our idea is that very soon we'll be running this in both EEG and MEG. Okay, there is an MIT notebook. Can you read it? or? Yeah, it says computation book. Name, David Cohen, number of book, one, subject, magnetic equipment. Am I reading it right? Yep, yep, you are. So that's the first notebook out of the many? That is book number one, dated 1966. And this is what the inside looks like. I'll have to take a quick snapshot once we wrap up this conversation uh, for our listeners. <laughs> when you review these notebooks like you're doing now and you open to a random page, do you have these memories that come back to you of what you were doing that day, what didn't work, um, what worked, and so on? Exactly true. I, can, I can't remember what I did yesterday, <laughs> but I remember what I did 40, 50 years ago, 50 years ago, as a matter of fact. You were showing me your notebooks, and I'm sure, like with your meticulous notes, some unexpected things happened that you were jotting down um, over the course of the projects. Perhaps, like, the results of the experiments weren't what you expected, or the results required a new explanation or a new theory. Did that ever happen? About 50% of the time, it was a surprise. If you have a new instrument, <laughs> the MEG, mm -hmm. and you're looking at the body for the first time, the head for the first time, everything you see is unexpected and a surprise, or at least half the things you see are surprising. So that was the fun of it. It must have been a, it must have been exhilarating then. Yeah, I, I just explained some of the phenomena. So many phenomena are still there in my books that I cannot explain. Mm -hmm. And I work now with the MEG at Mass General Hospital, going over some old phenomena back in those days. 
just trying to understand them. You had mentioned like, you know, everything was kind of new since you were working with a new instrument. But did you find, did you also find that you were making mistakes, but these mistakes were important to make because they led to the right corrections? Like, because we all have hypotheses when we're starting these experiments. And I, I know you said that a lot of this was new, but I'm sure you were going into certain experiments and, or certain little small pilot studies with an idea of how something would work. But if it didn't work that way, is was it kind of like a blessing because you saw the, the right way? Does that make sense? It wasn't quite as simple as that. Yeah. It was just hard work. Little bit by little bit mm -hmm. came out. Little bit of truth, little bit of truth there came out. It was never some big flashing light. Yeah. It was just, it was much slower than you seem to think it could be. Yeah. It takes a long time. I'm just one person. Yeah. I feel that I've kind of started the field mm -hmm. of biomagnetism in my own way. And for some years, I was working alone. I was the only one. Wow. But l later, after the brain was measured, a lot of new people came, and Europe actually got into it, and a lot of physicists started to measure the heart and the brain. So a lot of big developments were not by me, the later developments. Mm -hmm. Perhaps the most important later development were companies wanting to make money and build huge detectors instead of just one squid there are the new detectors are 306 squids in a huge helmet looks like a helmet fits over the head measuring all over the head the big technical developments were by companies and very clever people in those companies so my developments were way back when many years ago mm -hmm. something i wanted to ask you as well oftentimes um, you'll find that scientists credited with a breakthrough, they were only a few steps ahead of their competitors. Were there any, any of those competitors nipping at your heels? No, not, not at first. No, I was the only one. Okay. I measured the first MEG in 68. Mm -hmm. No one else did it. That was 1968. Then I measured the first good one in 1972, mm -hmm. as I said earlier. Yeah. And then competitors started to come in. By 1975, there were a lot of competitors. Finland, New York, Germany. Were they collaborators or more so like competitors? More like competitors. <laughs> <laughs> well, I imagine they were doing good work like yourself, and uh, it must have felt good that these researchers were embracing this new technology. There were, well, as in any new field, there were some unpleasant things going on, <laughs> but mostly we try to behave like gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> One last question, just to switch gears a bit. Could you reflect on the role invention plays in scientific research and some qualities of what makes an inventor in science? As far as I know, those people who have made unique contributions or something that you'd call inventions went ahead and did what they wanted to do in spite of other people. In other words, if you have, if you want to do something, just do it and don't listen to anyone else. Follow your own wishes and your own curiosity and your own thoughts and don't get advice from other people. Don't take it too seriously. So many of the big developments or the interesting developments came about who people who just charged ahead on their own and followed their own instincts and what they wanted to do. Don't be influenced too much by other people. Mm. That's my would. That's my answer to your your question. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely rooted on the research you're doing, but also keeping in mind that you got to keep at it and uh, not give up. Dr. Cohen, this brings us to the end of our conversation. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time out of your day. Um, any last parting words for our listeners, grad students like myself? and aspiring inventors uh, in science? Just three words, keep at it. Raw talk from inventor Dr. David Cohen. Take it away, Alex. And finally, Liz, I know that you're, you're very busy and have a lot of clinical and yeah, 
between your clinical work and your research, you have a lot to do, but do you have any kind of hobbies or anything that you do to unwind outside the lab? Sure. So um, my husband and I are avid hikers and skiers. So in the summer, uh, most weekends, we're off hiking. And if we take any vacation, we're off hiking. uh, (laughs) Big, long hikes. And then in the winter, most uh, weekends, we're cross-country skiing. So uh, that's what I do, sort of, for activity. And my other big hobby that I love is I make stained glass. And so that's really what I do to unwind. So I will create pieces of stained glass. Wow, I didn't know that. I can show you. It takes a lot of of focus. And so it's really nice because I can focus at work. And then when I go and sit down with my piece of stained glass, I'm focusing in a different way, and I find that that's really good for clearing my mind and right. kind of balancing my, my mind again. Oh, so. wow. Wow, I should I should maybe try that one time. It's fun. I'll, I'll get you to show me. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us, Liz. This was lovely. I think we learned a lot of cool new things, and I learned a lot of cool new things, too. Yeah. Thank you, Alex. Broad Talk is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Facebook, Instagram, at rawtalkpodcast. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. Just three words. Keep at it.